As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. races are and with formula one heading back to barcelona that means it's upgrade time with what's so far been a tentative development war set to burst into life but what could it mean for the balance of power between red bull and ferrari and how might it impact f1's midfield pack i'm ed straw and joining me to answer those questions and many more are mark hughes and gary anderson mark are you looking forward to getting to barcelona and maybe seeing a few more of those upgrades we've been waiting for yeah, indeed. It's um, it's a slow uh, development war, this one, because of the cost cap. Um, but that's it's brought its own intrigues, and we're seeing quite an interesting pattern develop, especially between the uh, two lead cars. How about you, Gary? It's actually been quite slow so far this season. We haven't had as many bits and pieces to talk about as perhaps we were expecting. But are you hoping the floodgates will now open? Well, I think, yeah, the, you know, the regulations are still in their infancy as such. So I think it's taken a bit of time for the teams to understand them because the cars are working quite different with the uh, majority of the downforce now produced by the underfloor um, and not so much of it by the front wing or the rear wing. So it isn't, you know, it, it isn't just one of these cases of jumping at the uh, at different wing assemblies to get better flow and get more downforce out of the front wing or rear wing. It's, it's about trying to sort of understand the whole package. And the underfloor is a, a big old component. And obviously, because of porpoising, it's thrown a bit of confusion, confusion into the development direction that's taken the teams a bit of time to recognise what makes it come and go. Because if you haven't got it, it's probably just around the corner. And if you have got it, it's probably just around the corner to make it worse. So um, taking a bit of time to sort themselves out. It's great to see F1 teams having to take on a completely different challenge. Okay, ground effect aero has been around for a long time, but they've gone from a position of knowing almost everything about the old generation of cars to facing all these unknowns. Let's get into it in a bit of detail, Mark. Ferrari team principal Mattia Bonotto said after the Miami Grand Prix that Red Bull's a couple of tenths faster, but he has promised an upgrade package for Barcelona that Ferrari hopes could recover that gap. So what are you expecting to see from Ferrari? Nothing radical, just the usual error tweaks we used to see coming on the cars race by race, but which under the cost cap, bit less frequent. Um, it's a car that works well, basically, but it's the limitation in uh, race conditions. It, it was increasingly obvious um, in recent races and very much so Miami was its end of straight speed. So um, we know that it does tend to porpoise at high speeds at the end of those straights and um I don't know whether it's that that's been an area of particular attack in in what's what's coming, um, but interestingly, Bernardo hinted how he's not quite sure how Red Bull can be do, doing so many upgrades while under the cost cap. He said he can't imagine there can be all that much more to come on the Red Bull because of how much we've already seen. So there's clearly a bit of paranoia about whether others have found a ways around the development limitation, knowing that Ferrari is right up to the limit on spend and struggling to find ways of keeping the development going. And I think we'd probably expect to see in the coming weeks and months um, maybe increasing activity on reliability upgrades in the power units because that's an obvious area where there might still be performance to be had if it can be justified under reliability. But it's, it's interesting. We seem to be getting to the margins with the top spending teams. 
Yeah, and there have already been some reliability upgrades going on. Renault successfully requested one to modify a water pump. That's what caused Alonso's retirement in Saudi Arabia. But apparently, all the manufacturers have had various submissions for reliability tweaks. That's an interesting little battleground. But Gary, Mark mentioned their upgrades and the risks of porpoising. So if you were a technical director now, would you be concerned about putting yourself in all sorts of porpoising trouble if you make an upgrade that looks great on paper and in simulation? And how would you go about avoiding that? Because there's always the risk that you don't understand some aspects of what your car is doing. Um, yes, it would be very, very uh, difficult to sort of make sure you have confidence to go there with some upgrades. Now, you know, take Ferrari as an example. You know, they've run more or less the same wing uh, from the start of the season, um, the rear wing. Um, you know, they may have changed it a little bit here and there, but in reality, they've they've run a fairly high downforce rear wing package. And... Um, the beam, the the rear wing, the beam wing, and the diffuser, you know, they all work hand in hand. So it's not just a simple case of saying I'm going to put a lower downforce rear wing on it, or I've got a more efficient package of rear wing, or whatever. You you could affect other things dramatically. And I mean, know that Ferrari are probably just teetering teetering on the edge of this porpoising. Um, and if they actually make their car, you know, five eight kilometers faster down the straight because of a rear wing change, it could very easily bring that uh, that porpoising into an area where it affects them through the corners. So they need to be very careful. I would I would say you need to sort of try to make sure you, you somehow understand um, how the, what's bringing the porpoising into play. Not that you can fix it, but you know, you need to understand that you, you have some mechanism of making sure your developments don't make it worse. Um, and that's going to be very, very difficult. As I say, you know, it's, it's still a very good, big learning curve for the teams. But um, somewhere along the line, you've got to create a CFD package or some type of uh, ability to simulate it in the wind tunnel to try to recognize when the diffuser stalls and when it reattaches and how, how easily that happens. Um, and if you don't, then you're always going to have a risk. Mark, do you have a sense that Ferrari is aware of that risk? Their car is porpoising a fair amount. It's not to the extent of Mercedes, but still bouncing quite aggressively at times. They can live with that fine at the moment. But it does feel like there could be a potential trap lying in wait somewhere if they aren't very careful. Yeah, potentially. I get the sense that the car that they've run so far, they have a very good understanding of and they've got very familiar with and has been a long time in the planning and development. And so they're potentially stepping out of that zone for the first time. And that, you know, that that does obviously represent an area of, of risk, but they can't just sit still. If the, the, the Red Bull is getting faster and it, it's um, considerably heavier than the, the Ferrari, so there's more time to come as they take that weight out of it. So Ferrari can't just sit still because they understand this car and it works well if, if the other car's beginning to put lap time you know, on it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just one of the one of the the, the fascinations of a of a development war, um, understanding why you're fast or or not. Yeah, I mean, everything comes as a risk, and, and obviously, you're saying there, Mark, that um, the Red Bull is a bit overweight. You know, weight is a lovely thing because if you get rid of it, the car will go faster, and it's easier on everything. It's easier on the tires. It's easier on the brakes. It's, it's easier on you don't use less fuel. You accelerate in less mass. You're stopping less mass. So all of that's a positive. The only thing you've got to be a little bit careful of is reliability because you don't make the car lighter um, without risk of making bits lighter. Uh, that's the problem. If you can take something off the car that you don't need and throw it away, then that's the best way of losing some weight. And It's unlikely that there's many bits on the Red Bull that you could actually throw away, but that's where I would start looking at it. And that, you know, that's a guaranteed lap time. That's something they need to do because I, I do think the Red Bull is, a, is aerodynamically, I suppose, a better package than the Ferrari in the longer term. Um, Ferrari's obviously started the season very, very strong. Um, done a fantastic job with the car. Very different concept, but still done a fantastic job and got the most out of it. So it's one of those sort of things where I think Ferrari, um, the, the battle between those two top teams is going to be intense. The budget cap will control it a little bit, but that means the other one, the other teams, including Mercedes, are going to have to join the club and, and, and bring developments to the game because Red Bull and Ferrari, the competition is so tough, they're going to be bringing uh, developments to the to the show. So uh, there's no time to stand around and wait. And you'd have to say, Mark, that Barcelona is probably quite a good place to, to try new parts because they do have the benchmark of the first pre-season test. I know 
things have changed, understandings changed since then. But that comparative data does have value, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure, there'll be some overlap, and that's um, that's one of the big things that Mercedes is going to be looking at because they ran that test there in the window with the um, the the, the original um, side pod shape before the the radical upgrade in the Bahrain test. So um, there will be some overlap there. Obviously, different uh, different weather conditions and temperatures and stuff, but still a, a lot of value. Um, to that and also it's a good track in terms of its layout because it demands a bit of everything and it, so if you if you find time there it, it, it's usually transferable to any track uh, and Gary we've mentioned a little bit the balance of power between Red Bull and Ferrari we've talked about the top speed thing but how would you evaluate how it's stacking up between those two teams would you be a little bit happier if you're in the Red Bull camp or the Ferrari camp oh difficult question isn't it um Right now, if I was looking at it, saying the Red Bull has got a better race car, um, faster race car, which means that they can overtake. As we know, overtaking is, is not easy, and it really wasn't easy in Miami, but that didn't stop um, stop Max Verstappen from doing it. Um, as long as you have the DRS positioned in the right, the right situation with, with each track, then I think that uh, the Red Bull will be a better car for the race. And the race is obviously where you score points. I mean, it's lovely to be on pole, lovely to have the fastest car. And if you can do that as Red Bull or Max Verstappen running the lower downforce, then so be it. But I think whenever you're going for that all-out qualifying lap, it's quite easy to make a little bit of an error with the lower downforce uh, and not get the best use out of the tyres, which is, again, is what I think happened in Miami. So I think on a Saturday, the the Ferrari is probably the most... Uh, the safest package with a little bit extra downforce to get a good lap out of it, be able to allow the driver to push pretty hard. Um, the Sunday is the Red Bull is a better race car because it's got that extra straight line speed. And as long as you can overtake, because you're not going to necessarily qualify and pole with the Red Bull, you're, you're going to have to be in a position where you can overtake. And as long as you've got the, the will and the want to try and do that, then I would rather have a Red Bull. Yeah, and given the recent success of Red Bull, that's probably a, a good position to take. Let's move on to Mercedes, Gary. We talked at length in our podcast before Miami about the Mercedes problems, so we don't want to get too repetitive, but we did see the W13 performing much better on Friday in Miami than anywhere else, including the two days that followed. So could the answer to its problems lie somewhere in understanding that unexpected performance? Well, yeah, I mean, that is the, that is the thing. Obviously, they've they've had we call it poor performance, let's say, as far as getting a lap time out of it for five the previous five races, um, previous four races at least. So uh, suddenly, I think the Friday um, in Miami would have confused them a bit more because, you know, when the car suddenly pops up and you can do the lap time and then you lose it again on the Saturday, that's even, can be even more confusing because obviously it's it's something they've done between Friday and Saturday that that, that changes it dramatically. I know, we, I know we talk about the grip building up on the circuit and that, but you know, relatively, you know, the the corner speed hasn't changed dramatically for you know two tenths of a second around the lap or four tenths or half a second around the lap. It's not a massive grip change on the on the uh, on the circuit to to warrant the fact that Porpoise suddenly becomes such a drama you know lewis went a bit quicker on saturday than uh, than uh, russell did on the on the uh, on the friday so the car was still capable of getting into there but it just seems such a fine line between having the porpoising so badly that you can't actually do a lap or having it acceptably that you can get on with a lap so um i would have said friday would confuse them a bit more because they never actually got themselves to a point where they actually went quick with controllable porpoising i suppose you might call it on the friday to actually going okay with no porpoising the car was still porpoising on saturday and they were slow so uh, yeah i would say it's a bit confusing for them and as i say my my article i did about cooling i wouldn't be surprised that there's something in there personally because the way they their vertical radiator duct means that the spillage goes underneath the floor and if i take you back quite a few years back to the old ground effect days um i think it was probably the second ground effect car that williams built now in those days the radiator duct was just a hole in the front of the side pods and the, the radiator was in behind that and the exit was out the top of the side pods all quite happy uh the bottom of the radiator duct was the leading edge of the floor and um you know at a certain speed the the um the airflow through that radiator would reverse itself and it would go in the outlet and out the out the inlet and that underneath the floor of the car 
um, just because the low pressure underneath the car at a certain point got to such a such a low pressure that it just sucked the radiator, uh, radiator air through the opposite direction. Um, so it, I think it was I think they found out about it because they followed a car that had a bit of an oil leak one day and uh, discovered that the lines on the side pod were actually heading the wrong direction. I mean that was before they. I suppose the uh, flow has got invented, but it was you know an oil coming out of a, another car and dirty oil um, is a good flow vis really. So those sort of things can happen. And as I say, if you've got a low pressure underneath the car, it's going to at some point in time want to take over from the flow through the radiator because the radiator can't flow all that air. And you know all these other cars haven't detached the radiator inlet from the underfloor inlet with these big undercuts for for no reason it's it's there for a reason and you know mercedes are the outlier so that would be an area i'd be looking at very closely i guess with that it's a question of how much freedom they've actually given themselves there because there's various rules governing the profiles you have of the the bodywork there so they may have boxed themselves into a, a a corner but mark what are you expecting to see new from mercedes in barcelona more of the same or something a bit bigger than the changes we've seen so far well, a sentiment in Miami coming into Miami was that if those new parts, which were they were they were very keen to um, specify that the the new rear wing and beam wing and the front wing they they were specifically about getting a more aero efficient package um, and weren't connected to the porpoising problem. But they were hoping that if those new parts could shed more light on understanding the big limitation of the car, the porpoising then there was time to get new development parts on it, addressing that problem by Barcelona. But the immediate reaction after Miami was that they were still lost. So I don't know, there could have been some breakthrough as they read through the data when they got back to base, which has enabled them to find a, a promising path. But if if they still haven't done this, there'd be no point in making a new part. So we may, we may see something significant, we may not. The, I think the interesting thing is, that, is what we're talking about before, just those overlapping data points, the original side pod car here in winter testing. And you know, you, we're hearing stories that both of the drivers have been saying, can we not go back to the original car? That that felt much better. Um, and the, the, you know, all the data insists it's not much better, it's actually slower, but the, the drivers, are, that's not what they felt. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a bit of a litmus test for the car this weekend and whether it uh, they proceed in this direction not just with this car but also with um the next year's car which they you know having to start thinking about obviously gary uh, a car can feel better and be slower if, if you were mercedes what would you do would you be tempted almost to bring the old side pods as well just to do some back-to-back work and, and see what you can learn because obviously the packaging underneath is pretty much the same it's just the the external shapes that, that made the the big difference Yes, um, you know, there's no reason why not to. It's one of those sort of difficult decisions to make because obviously, you know, they have the CFD wind tunnel and, you know, um, what was it, three days at Barcelona testing um, on that old side pod package. Um, and they've got obviously CFD wind tunnel and many days of test of running with of the new car. So they can compare the data. They can see if they see any difference in it. And I'm sure all they're seeing of difference is the fact that the new package generates more downforce in some way. Now, as I say, the, the, you know these regulations, they have reduced the amount of downforce produced by the front wing, reduced the amount of downforce from the rear wing, and increased the amount of downforce from the underfloor. So, you know, you have to look at it logically at some point in time and say, you know, that I'm struggling with this underfloor. There's a, there's something in the underfloor that's creating it. Now we we hear a lot of talk and a lot of comments on our our columns about. Um, you know, bring back Frick, bring back Active, you know, all that sort of stuff. And yes, all that's great. But, you know, from my point of view, if you had Active Suspension, it would just be, it would be, you could do away with it invisibly. You wouldn't see the problem. The problem's great to see, and the problem's great to challenge the engineers and the teams to actually find a solution to it, a visual solution that we can see that changes the car and keeps the lap time. Um, I don't want Formula One to become one of these things where you sit in the back of the garage with a keyboard and, and, and set the car up better. So, I think that Mercedes need to look at where, at what the advantage is with the new package. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say just jump into the to the old package and uh, and say that affects every everything because it probably won't be as fast as the Red Bull or the or the or the um, Ferrari, but it might be more consistent. But I would be looking very closely at uh, at you know we saw the Red Bull floor, we saw the Ferrari floor, and we saw the Mercedes underfloor, various pictures of it. 
I'd be looking very closely at what Red Bull have done with their lumps and bumps that's on the on the floor underneath because that's those are very valuable pieces of kit. Whenever we talk about the underfloor stalling, you know, it's not as though the underfloor just goes, I've had enough, can't cope with this. It's one little bit, might be the you know, one area might be the size of your thumbnail or a bit bigger, but suddenly it's the size of your fist. And then it's the, you know, it's much bigger than that. Um, so it, it just, it, once you've stalled one little area, it just increases. And by putting some of those lumps and bumps in strategic places, you can actually minimize that happening. Because if you can stop those thumbnail sizes happening, you can stop the fist sizes happening. So as I say, it's not just the whole underflow that stalls. So they, I think they can fix their car without, you know, throwing all, throwing all the goodness away, as, as uh, Total Wolf keeps saying. But I, I, personally would be heading into the radiator inlet duct and then looking at the underfloor and trying to pick the spot the small spots where the uh where the um st- the stall is initiating and gary to address one question that that came up quite a bit in the comments on that article you recently wrote about the mercedes there was debate about the aero versus mechanical solution is there any way mercedes could solve its problems purely mechanically obviously they partly have because ride height is within that realm and that we know they're running higher ride height but more in terms of the the way the suspension's working the ride etc someone suggested that it could just lie there yeah you know everything can be fixed in various directions i mean the one thing about it is you we look at the the raising the rear ride height let's say if to to help the stall the problem is you raise the rear ride height you lose downforce right through the speed range um and we also know that in low speed corners the mercedes is very good um we know that in low-speed corners you spend a lot of time. So actually, you know, although the numbers of downforce are, are a lot less as far as a physical number is concerned, they're actually still very advantageous in slow-speed slow corners. So you want to keep the ride height down because the slow-speed corners are okay, and then the rear of the car gets gets too low theoretically at high speed, and then that starts the porpoising. So um, you need some mechanism there. It might be a different rate, rate range on the rear rockers. You know, a much much higher rising rate, or on a third spring, or something like that. Um, and you know, again, we we'll go back to the frick and active suspension. A lot of people are saying, you know, bring that back, but it's not there. You haven't got it. Nobody's got it. So you have to fix it within what you've got. The biggest problem is the end result that you have between the car and the and the track surface is this black round thing called a tire, and it's full of air and it has very little damping characteristics. So. If you theoretically, if you make the rear of the car solid, just not go anywhere, the tire will 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 move and bounce a lot more. So though you don't get the porpoising through this, you don't get the porpoising through the suspension. You get the porpoising on the tire because of the load chains. So it's a balancing act between suspension and rear tire stiffness, or rear rear suspension stiffness and rear tire stiffness. Um, it's not an easy an easy equation, but you know. The problem is if you go out and you put a plaster on your arm before you go skiing because you know you're going to fall and break your arm, that's a bit of a waste of time. The best thing is to learn to ski um, before you go out and then not fall over and break your arm. And that's what I think with anything you have to do, you have to go to the, you know, the prime mover of the problem, which is trying to fix the uh, airflow um, separation problems and then let the suspension do its work uh, in making the car compliable, good traction, um, all that sort of stuff. But uh, don't try and just put a big bandage on it. It's going to be a waste of time in the long term. And that's definitely an outstanding metaphor uh, for that. And it's all going to come down to understanding and identifying the problem, which is proving somewhat elusive for Mercedes so far. Aston Martin should have a fairly substantial upgrade for Barcelona. That'll include a new floor. There is talk of a major side pod change, but it sounds like that's going to be a little bit further down the line. So what are you expecting there? Uh, there's a major change coming, which I'm assured will be very visible in Barcelona. Whether that's the full side pod treatment rethink that's coming, we'll just have to wait and see. There's conflicting stories about the timing of that. But whatever, there'll be a significant change to the car in Barcelona. It was at its least uncompetitive in Miami um, in the season so far, but it's just because there's no fast corners there, which is its biggest weakness, and there's plenty of those in Barcelona. So even if the update has worked, we may actually see them less competitive than in Miami, where Lance Stroll was able to get through to Q3 on, on merit just because of the track layout. So um, I, I, I think we're probably um, going to see some movement there and some learning there, um, but I'm, I, I'm not expecting any great like moving up the grid. In fact, it, I'd be surprised if there was as competitive as in Miami just because of the different track layouts. Well, I mean... As we've seen in the past, the one thing about Aston Martin, as they're called now, um, they're not frightened about about uh, following the direction that other people have have uh, have laid down. 
Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them buying into a package that's uh, that's already on the grid somewhere. Uh, all, all side pod stuff and underfloor, basically. But, you know, it, it takes time to do all that stuff and get it all ready. So I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see it happening. But I, I'm not quite sure how you would package that underfloor and then side pods as two different developments. I think you might need to do it all as one package if you're going to try and work the front floor of the the front corner of the floor a bit harder allowing the diffuser to have less work to do then you know it, it's all part of that package the side put on the underfloor all part part of uh, of that together so i would think it needs to come as one big lump of bits uh, as opposed to spreading it around two or three races it might come down to what exact problem they're tackling because one of the things they've struggled with compared to some of the other teams that are struggling with porpoising is they pick up floor damage quite easily so they feel they've, they've had to be more careful with their ride heights and that kind of thing so it could well be a more robust floor might allow them to run a little bit lower and unlock some performance there that perhaps could separate it from the side pods but it, it's an interesting situation for Aston Martin isn't it Mark because they're a team with these great expectations and hopes and it's just not quite happening is it and we're now at a point where you have Sebastian Vettel calling an eighth place like a victory which really isn't where that team's supposed to be by now is it? No, but you have to be realistic in um, accepting where you are and in order to put it right. Um, and there's probably a, a bit of a conflict there between that reality and the, the, the focus of the people, you know, putting it right and that of the, the, the ownership who, who's put a lot of money in and expects to see results and is seeing the team fall down the grid rather than um, going up. So, yeah, let's just hope that they can find a direction quickly and um, ease that tension a little bit. What do you make of Aston Martin, Gary? We'd always like to ask you about that team, given that you uh, you built it with your bare hands some decades <laughs> ago as, as Jordan. Uh, well, I didn't quite do that. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a strange situation they're stuck on, as Mark just said, the expectations of the people that can do something about it and the expectations of the bosses is, is maybe slightly different. And that's a pretty difficult place to be. I mean, I've been there. Um, it's a very, very difficult place to be to sort of say to somebody you need to sort of settle down a little bit allow me to understand where the problem's coming from and allow me to sort of uh, apply a, a you know a fix for it that takes time and that takes it takes effort and it takes a lot of money but some people want things happen very quickly and i think you know with the fact that the, the growing pains they've got they've got people coming in from all over the place from other teams who've always coming in with big ideas but it's uh, you know you just can't take a piece off a Red Bull, for example, and stick it on an Aston Martin, and suddenly you're Red Bull. You know, you're, you're at Red Bull's performance. It's very, very difficult to do that. You need to learn about it yourself because there's so much detail in making it all work. Um, you know, when I when they did, you know, copy that um, the, the the Mercedes a couple of years ago as uh, Racing Point, I I'm very, very surprised and very impressed that they made it work. If they actually just took that from pictures and made it into a car and it performed on the circuit the way it did uh, that's that's pretty impressive so um you won't get you won't get that happening twice so it's one of those sort of situations at the minute you know they have a, a close relationship with mercedes um which is great but unfortunately the competitive cars are ferrari and red bull so you have to look look in a different direction from mercedes at the moment and um i think that's the last thing that andrew green will want to do um, he's, he's an ex-colleague of mine we worked together well for a long time um, and I've known him through all his career in one way or another so you know I think they have a handle on how they can get on with life and what they can do um, and how they can build and, and move it forward but this expansion overnight stuff you know bigger factories more wind tunnels whatever it is definitely throws the a googly in there somewhere and um, I think they're in a bit of probably in, a, in the midst of a bit of an implosion very soon. Uh, they, they'll be being forced into results quite quickly. Yeah, it's going to be probably a difficult time to be at that team, but the potential's still there. It's just a question of, I guess, the patience being there to realise it. We'll get back to upgrades in a moment, but first it's time for a quick Grid Rival update. Grid Rival's a fancy motorsport game that the race has its very own F1 league in. Now, with Scott not here, I'm hoping to get a little bit of advice from Mark to improve my chances of beating him. I've got £75 million to spend and only Carlos Sainz and Fernando Alonso in my lineup, Mark, so just 
setting the, the money aside, who do you think I should pick driver-wise to beat Scott? So you've got Alonso and Sainz already. Yeah. How many other drivers do you get? I've got another three drivers, uh-huh. uh, but my previous three were out of contract, so I had people yeah. like Kevin Magnussen right. uh, in there. So uh, yeah. just looking at well, options. Yeah. Alonso and Sainz, their, their look's got to change soon. You'd look you'd look foolish jettison them just as they come good. Um for Spain, I'd avoid I'd avoid the temptation of Alpha because that, that's been really strong in the last two races with Bottas. Um, but I don't think Barcelona will be its best track. Um, I'd be looking probably more at McLaren, um, probably Lando, if you can afford them, um, with your other drivers, because I think the, the McLaren will be quite respectable around there. But I'd get is it possible? Can you can you do like one race deals? Can you get back onto Bottas for Monaco? Because I think he could be a real, he could cause a real upset there. Does that how? I'm not don't know how the rules work. Yeah, you can you can sign for a, up to five races, so you can do one race deals, three race deals, five race deals. So uh, that could be a good uh, a good option. Well, I'd yeah, I'd be looking at um at Orlando for for Spain and um, a Bottas for Monaco, and uh, yeah, just filling in filling in the gaps as your budget allows after that. But I'd stick with Alonso on science as well. Excellent. That's good advice. It's just hope Scott doesn't listen to this because I'm determined for that to give me an advantage over him. So we'll we'll talk about that after the Spanish Grand Prix again. We'll be following progress over the year. So download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can join in and you'll find the link in the episode description for this podcast. Well, Gary, let's get back to upgrades. There's going to be plenty of other mid-pack teams making some changes. Any teams in particular that you'll be keeping a close eye on? Well, the interesting thing, I suppose, is Alpine, to be honest. I mean, it's, this is Alonso's home race, so he'll want to put his best foot forward for that. I think he's been a bit of a naughty boy lately, actually, you know, in reality. And, you know, they're, they're, Alpine are complaining a bit about getting the penalty for shortcutting the track on, what, two laps from the end of the race. You know, this is, this is beaten, going off the beaten track of developments. But I think that's that shows the... the um, the aggression that Alonso has to pr- try and pull a good result out of it. I mean, if you've got a five-second time penalty and you go across the track and save a couple of seconds of that, <coughs> you know, it's only right you get a penalty um, because it's just the same as passing somebody. He, he didn't have that opportunity, but he, at the end of the day, he did pass somebody by going off the track because he, he, the penalty didn't drop behind somebody. So anyway, that's a different problem. Um, Alpine confused me a little bit because... They seem to be up and down a little bit through, even through a given race weekend. If you if you look at uh, at Miami, I mean, Alonso was right up there in the early sessions, and then it just sort of dwindled away slowly as time went by. Uh, you know that that has to show that they're shooting their bolt too early as far as potentially engine engine mapping or fuel loads or whatever, because you know as as the sessions go by, in reality, you know you should. You should stay level or pick up a fraction relative to the fastest cars, because um, you know you're doing the same job. You're taking fuel out, you're putting on new tires at the right time, all that sort of stuff. And also, you're turning the engine up, and you know you're you're tightening the seat belts up, all that sort of stuff to go faster when you get to qualifying. But it, it hasn't worked for uh, for Alpine. Um, so I think they need to sort of find out themselves where they're sort of trying to get to. I think they might be trying to impress people a bit too early in the weekend. And obviously that, that doesn't work out in the longer term too much. Now, obviously Miami was a little bit of a drama for them and Ocon put it in the wall and couldn't go any qualifying. So they only had one car. But that one car was still driven by somebody who everybody rates and has won two world championships. Um, so he should be there as such their stability um, and allow Ocon to be the loose cannon because he's you know young and hungry and uh, carefree, I suppose you might call it. So they're in a position where, you know, maybe they need to understand the car a little bit better as far as taking it forward and maybe a few developments would help them. Alpha Tori are sort of disappointing a little bit this year as well. They're they're not they're not just quite there at this point in time. I think their car visibly I, I, I like what their car looks like. But um it's it obviously lacks a little bit of lap time. So I think all that midfield bunch will be It'll be more about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It'll be small, subtle changes that you will see because I, I don't, I don't think there's any big magic bullet that's, that's waiting for those teams to sort of pick up and, and end up being competitive along with the guys at the front. You know, the, the midfield is close enough in itself. So Mercedes, I suppose, is their uh, is their measure. Everybody wants to beat a Mercedes. Everybody wants to 
to get their car better than the Mercedes. So I think counting uh, Red Bull and, and Ferrari as being the two guys at the front, I think Mercedes Mercedes is the yardstick for everybody, whether they can beat them or not beat them. Um, whether they move, not sure whether they move forward or not. So I think we'll be seeing small developments, uh, maybe some front wing stuff that. That stuff that Mercedes did in the front wing with the cranked rear flaps and the slot at the back of it, that's um, that's pushing the regulations, but it's a you know it's a pretty good idea. So we might see more of that sort of philosophy arriving um, pretty soon because it's a good idea to get more outwash on the front tyre. So, you know, um, be interesting to see who brings what, I suppose is the best way of putting it. Alpine are in quite an interesting situation. They have tried to switch their setup focus a little bit to make sure that their race pace is is strong, potentially sacrificing a little bit of qualifying pace in doing so. But they're, they're in their upgrade, which worked fairly well in a few more bits in, in Spain. But it's it's such a muddy picture in this midfield, isn't it, Mark? There's there's a group of, well, it's Mercedes, McLaren, Alpha, Alpine, Alpha Tari and Haas who are all covered on average performance by a relatively small distance. Mercedes are just statistically on average at, at the front of that, but it, it still feels like it's up for grabs in that mid-pack, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely is, and it'll vary according to the track layout, according to the, um, you know how how well the the, the team gets its runs right in qualifying. Um, you, you know what the track temperature is; it's that closely balanced between that 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 group that it's uh, it's like shuffling the cards every every race weekend. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a few patterns you can pick out. You can, like we talked about before, you know, the McLaren's probably better in the faster corners, but they're a little bit weak when it has to break. Uh, the the Alpha is very good in the the slow corners. Um, maybe not as good as McLaren in the faster ones. The Alpha Tari's got a sort of somewhere in the middle, but yeah, generally. Um, it, it's close enough that uh, really it's just sort of the quality of your weekend, the the job that the driver does, it, it becomes even more crucially important um, in, in that pack. You, you, you could be sixth on the grid, you could be going out in Q1, you know, it, it, it's that close. Yeah, it makes it a very interesting part of the field to watch. It'd be great if the front of the field one day is like that. There's some hope under this set of rules. It may be one day, but I think we'd have to wait a bit longer for that. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, we're going to answer a few listener questions now because after every race, we answer questions put to us by members of the Race Members Club, but sometimes the questions aren't so race specific and we don't get the chance to get to them so let's tackle a few of those now we'll go to gary for this one a question from george willis he says that at both imola and miami we saw both races become stale due to drs trains after the bright start is the new formula not living up to expectations i think it is actually i think you know the cars are able to follow each other uh closer for longer um it's it's one of those sort of it's one of those sort of things where the tracks need to suit it. Emila, DRS-wise, it's a bit short, and obviously it's it's very difficult to pass. You're on a big, long curve as well. So it's not easy to pass Emila just because the DRS is not necessarily long enough or in a good enough position. Um, and in Miami, again, it was a different reason altogether. It was You had to go offline, and offline was, um, was dirty, horrible, a lot less grip. So... You were taking your life in your hands or your race result in your hands by by going offline and trying to pass somebody. So 
there's different reasons for everything. But I think as far as the new regulations are concerned, we are seeing the cars being able to follow each other. And one of the interesting things, I don't know whether anybody who, who reads this or will listen to this actually watches MotoGP. The one thing we do get with MotoGP, um, or we hear a lot with MotoGP, is how their front tires, if they're following somebody, uh, how their front tires um, overheat. Um, but the difference in leading and, and following an, another bike, and that's just a motorbike. That's just a motorbike with hot air coming out the back of it. Nothing, nothing special. But how their front tire overheats and builds up pressure just because of following somebody else's hot air. And, a, and an interesting thing here, and I'll, I'll put this as a stupid thing. My motorhome, I got tire pressure sensors on it, and uh, I set all the tires correctly. My two rear tires, I will set off from the home here at a certain pressure, and uh, the left rear tire gains twice as much pressure as the right rear tyre. It goes up by 4 PSI more. Um, so one on the right goes up by 4 PSI, and the one on the left will go up by 8 PSI. And you think, why is it doing that? And the exhaust pipe is just ahead of the, just ahead of the left rear tyre. So, you know, that, that little bit of an influence on the ambient temperature coming out of the exhaust pipe around the rear tyre um, changes the pressure quite dramatically. So... In Formula One, it's the same thing. You know, the, the the cars can follow each other a bit better, but you will lose, you know, will still lose grip, and you will still change the tire performance as you follow them because the front tires will heat a bit more. So the relative balance between the front and the rear changes. So at the end of the day, you know, I think we we we've got to get to a point. If this tire situation and this complaints about tire pressures, um, the 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 fact of um, not being able to bring them in correctly, all that sort of stuff. If we're ever going to get on top of that and make the tyre do its job properly, we need to have an active tyre pressure system on the cars, which will mean that you'll have a system inside the rim that has a little cylinder which can blow the tyre up if it's too low and a system that will release the pressure if it gets too too high. And you just keep a constant tyre pressure then and that would help dramatically. It can be a standard kit. We've got standard rims. It's very, very easy to do. It's uh, not, a, not a drama whatsoever. You know, people say, oh, but it might not be reliable. Yeah, well, everything might not be reliable. But you could very easily sort of stabilize the tire situation by having an active pressure system. Yeah, it's an interesting proposal, one that I haven't heard suggested uh, before. So perhaps one we can put to, to Pirelli as, a, as, as an idea. But Mark, on that, although we have seen problems with with tyres and, and following, we have seen generally at the front that it has been possible under these new rules for a faster car that's behind to win more easily, should we say, perhaps than than in the past. We've seen that with Verstappen passing Leclerc a, f- a few times. So there have also been gains on the tyres, haven't they, in terms of the fact that if you're behind someone, you can be behind them for a period without just completely cooking the tyres and not being able to attack. Yeah, I think it's better. Um we, what we also saw in Miami, of course, was a relighting of the fire after the safety car. Leclerc was able to relaunch his attack again on Verstappen after it looked all done and dusted. And similarly, Leclerc's late tyre change and Perez's response and Imola, that really enlivened that dice, which had fizzled out. So that just underlines the importance of the tyres and being raceable. The, the cars can follow more closely, but you still need the tyres under you to nail the outbreaking moves. And if you're having to pussyfoot around concentrating on not locking up, the racing's going to suffer because you're flat spot, your race is effectively ruined. But with a bit of grip beneath you, you can afford to be a bit more adventurous in attack and defence. So I think it's better. Aerodynamically, it's better. Um, the tyres are probably a little bit better, a little bit less heat-sensitive than they were, but there's still room for improvement. I think, just to add someone in there, I think Leclerc's, Leclerc's advantage in um, Miami was probably, after the safety car, was probably down to the fact they're running a bit more downforce, or visible rear wing downforce. So, you know, that works the tyre. The extra downforce gets that tyre working a bit better, which is the same, you know, in qualifying, to be honest. You know, that's why I say in, in qualifying, the Ferrari's a safer car to probably head into a, a Banzai lap than the Red Bull. And I think after the safety car, it's a similar sort of situation. Just for that one or two laps, You've just got that little bit extra. And and it gives you confidence as well to push that little bit extra. So uh, it's different if you're second or if you're in the lead as well. You know, the, the difference is being in the lead and, and making a stupid mistake, being second and trying to play catch-up. You've only got one chance to have a go at it, so you do. But uh, I think it's down to downforce, that, that recovery from the safety car. Yeah, it's a good point, especially once the tyres have been on there for a while. There's less tread, so it is 
even harder to get the, the temperature into them. Next question is from Tom Miller. We'll throw this one at you, Mark. Uh, Tom says, given the ongoing underwhelming nature of Daniel Ricciardo's performances, how likely is it that he will lose his drive at the end of the season? Who would be the favourites to replace him? It's not impossible, but I'd be surprised. He's still got a year to run on his contract. And I don't think his performances are so disastrous that McLaren would be thinking in terms of paying it out. Um, he's still got time to bring it all together, but I'm, I'm a little concerned it's taken this long. Um, who would replace him? Uh, Piastri would be the first choice, but I think he'd be on a very strong piece of Alpine elastic. Um, Gasly, Herter, or Ward? What about Mario Andretti? He's driving it soon. I wouldn't put it past Mario Andretti being able to. He'd probably give it a go knowing him. Well, you know, he's got the experience of Grand Effect cars, hasn't he, as well? So don't, don't kind him out. <laughs> That's very true, yeah. No, never know. I, I imagine if you're uh, Danny Ricardo, that would be a little bit of a disappointing turn of events if Mario Andretti replaces you. But but yeah, it, it is strange, Ricardo, isn't it? Because he's he's not doing badly, but he's not doing that well. He's sort of fine, isn't he? Which is not what he was signed to, to do. So it's a strange one. Yeah, as you said, Mark, he is under contract next year, so I suspect he'll hang around. But... Yeah, that clock is ticking for him, uh, unfortunately, and he just can't get onto the level of, of Lando Norris. Next question, Gary, is from Oscar Robledo. A question relating to track design triggered by Miami. Uh, given that the track visibility may have been a contributory factor in the Gasly-Norris incident, does street circuit design need to be revisited? If memory serves, there were visibility concerns expressed by the Saudi by the drivers in Saudi. I think, you know, when it comes to street circuit design and blind corners I suppose there's nothing worse than Monaco the difference really is the speed you know Monaco's relatively low speed but you've got around Casino Square there you're not going slow by any means but we've seen on many occasions where somebody will have a bit of a problem up around there and somebody else arrive on the scene pretty quickly um, so you relate everything I think from street circuit design from Monaco onwards and all that's happened really is all these new street circuits have got um Faster, I suppose you'd call it. Lots of faster corners, lots of sweeping fast, you know, almost flat out or if not flat out corners. And that means you need, you know, you're traveling at, you know, 90 meters a second or something, 80 meters a second. So it doesn't take long to cover that that uh, entrance, apex and exit of a corner. You know, you're talking about spending one second in, a, in one of those corners. So you need to have some sort of visibility. And I think... What we saw in Saudi Arabia and what we saw in Miami was a bit near the mark for, for blind corners. And I think that needs to be addressed for sure. The, the Mickey Mouse part of you know, my circuit thing I did before Miami, you could see that, that part of the track, that chicane and the bit before it was all going to be a bit, you know, Mickey Mouse do nothing for you because of, these Formula 1 cars are you know, they're big and heavy. They, they brake and they accelerate horrendously fast. And that sort of thing is just a bus stop for them. So something needs to be done with that for sure, but it, it, it shouldn't you know it shouldn't take much for the FIA to come up with a distance of visibility required off the racing line, and you have to be able to see that that distance. So, so it depends on the speed of the track. Every point in time, you've got a, a speed that the simulator will show you show you. And at that point, you have to be able to see X distance. Um, so eliminate the blind corner, blind high speed corners. Or you, you, you start to put in some sort of a system where basically the driver can get warned uh, early and quickly about it. I mean, we have the white flags coming out now when there's a slow car ahead around a blind corner and stuff. So it all works okay. But I think we are going to see, if we keep on doing this type of track design, we are going to see you know, an incident happening that's not nice to see. It'll be an airplane accident. And that's, that's really not where you want to be, to be honest. These cars are pretty safe, but... As you can see, you know, even with the Saints accident and the Ocon accident and a low-speed corner, you were talking something like 51G there, you know, uh, one of those high-speed corners when it changes direction in the wrong way because you've clipped somebody else, you know, you're going to be talking about 150G. So that's the last thing you want, to be honest. So you need to make sure that, obviously, you, you always cover the, the potential accident positions with... The, the, cr the crushable or the, the uh, impact absorbing uh, crash barriers but it's the, it's the place that you don't expect the accident to be that is the, is the ones that hurt you know when there's just a concrete wall because it's normally just a straight line that's, that's the sort of accidents that really hurt so you need to make sure you cover for those Mark do you think that there's a little bit of playing fast and loose with the circuit design for these 
not necessarily temporary so that they're they're almost sort of in between urban circuits aren't they that, that have been created like Jeddah, like miami yeah i mean it's a new style of race isn't it it's it's, it's something that liberty is um pushing for and it used to be that you had a a, a race of international status um had to happen on a new circuit before there was a grand prix there and things like that would get ironed out but um yeah, I guess it, it it is something that um, they need to pay more attention to, and it, it needs um, uh, jumping on qu- quickly. And uh, you know, need, it, it certainly the the Jeddah visibility problem. Um, you know, they 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 made an effort at improving that for the second race, but it, it wasn't really enough. There's still the the potential for the same accident was still there, and yeah, it's it's. It, it's one of those small details that um, can easily be overlooked and it needs to be followed up on. And the the final question we've got, uh, without even this one at you, Mark, is from George Willis, says, is Lance Stroll going backwards in terms of his driving standards? He's had quite a few punishments recently. Just to put some numbers on that for you, Mark, he has had nine stewards uh, stewards decisions so far this year. I think one of those was being allowed to race in Australia, having not set a time in qualifying, so that one doesn't count. But... He's had eight investigations <laughs> that he's he's been involved in uh, so far. I think he's just got his hands full with a poor car, and he's he's pushing on, trying to make a difference. It's bound to get a bit more scrappy when, you know, than if you compare it to when he was in the pink Mercedes a couple of years ago. You know, very good car, second or third fastest car at any given race. And so, you know, to go from that to where he is now in a, in a couple of years is bound to be a frustration there, and there's. There's bound to be a grabbing of every half chance, and and sometimes that doesn't come off. Yeah, he doesn't seem to particularly regress. He's do, he's doing all right this season. He did okay in Miami, reasonable weekend there. So he's probably doing about what we'd expect from Lance Stroll, which is nothing extraordinary, nothing terrible, just just a sort of solid, a solid level of of performance. What have you made of his evolution, Gary? Well. The, the big problem for me is I think he gets the brunt of his dad's frustration more than his own frustration. You know, it must be pretty difficult. If you're a driver and you're just driving in the team, you're out there like, you know, Alex Albon or Lando Norris or whatever, and you're you're just driving in the team and you're doing the best job you can and, you know, all, all decent, and you, you have confidence in yourself and your relationship with the team. But then, you know, you take Lance, he's got the worst situation possible. His, his dad's probably on his back for not doing it well enough. And then whenever he gets in the car, he's frustrated because the car won't, isn't quite good enough either. So, you know, he's got the, a double whammy when he sits down for dinner at night with his dad. Maybe he just doesn't get away from it, whereas the others can. So I think he's a, I think he's an example of the trying to, uh, the father trying to use him to um, fulfill his, expectations i suppose you might call it that would never happen in motorsport gary never (laughs) yeah i think it's a unusual situation for him there certainly well thanks very much gary and mark for your insight we're gonna turn our attention now to the spanish grand prix and the various upgrades that are appearing there do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there including that piece we mentioned by gary on the Mercedes porpoising mystery from Friday in Miami. Check out our sister podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast. There's a Formula E podcast as well and MotoGP, so lots to listen to there. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. We're off to Barcelona now, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the Spanish Grand Prix. The Athletic. <laughs> 